Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great movies, so many great conversations. But it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered from season one up through our current season. For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968. We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right? Don't you even get me started. <sighs> Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again? Yes, also so much better. <laughs> wait, wait, no, that's not what I... <sighs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard? They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books. I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel. And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver! We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight. We haven't talked about Gaslight. Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. Trail, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, this is the end. Jaylee Thompson takes us to see how Caesar reigns in battle for the planet of the apes. No, Pete, no! We want guns! Now, the final chapter in the incredible ape saga. There it is. Our wars. This is the hell my forefathers used to speak about. This background radiation alone will give us 300 rentgens an hour. The battlefield, a dead city 12 years after the ultimate bomb has been dropped. The prize, the right to inherit what's left of the earth. The contestants, ape against man. The most unbelievable showdown ever filmed. As the mutants, 
strange, transformed men who live underground like moles battle the apes to decide who will be master and who will be slain. It shall not kill ape, Andy. Oh, oh. I don't think you should make those noises ever again. <laughs> Andy, tell me that's not the height of, of your criticism of this movie. Here's what I expect. Pete, you just didn't connect with it. And so, you know, if you can't connect with some of those elements, you're just not going to like the movie. Maybe it just was too challenging. <laughs> too challenging. <laughs> yes, this is, there's 2001 and in <laughs> and battle for close the proximity <laughs> battle for the planet of the apes right up I, there neck and neck <laughs> i have to tell you i you know as with the ape series i still uh, have fun with it but this is definitely a letdown after uh the last two for me and me oh and good me. Uh, this, i stand uh, relieved this, sir yeah this film um it's it's never been close to my favorites of the bunch. In fact, I, I think I would say that this is my least favorite of these original five. I always uh, find it lacking. I feel that the characters, while some of the characters in the previous films uh, were fairly uh, one note, I find that the ones here just end up being just so much worse. And and it's it's a very frustrating uh, story. I, I think largely my problem is that the story here just feels like they didn't know what they were doing. Uh, you know, there's we'll we'll talk about the writing, I'm sure, but I I feel like it. Fe- th- this just feels like it's in the hands of people other than uh, the core group who had been handling it so far. Yeah, even uh, with the dulcet tones of John Huston opening it. Uh, as the lawgiver, uh, you know, you think if you're in John Houston's hands, maybe something will come out of it. Yeah, it was an odd choice to kind of bring him on board in that cameo uh, opening and closing the movie of the lawgiver. I don't know if it really does much other than really lend us his voice, which does have a great tone. And in the sense of the character, the lawgiver, I can see why they would pick him because he does have a great voice. You don't need to know who it is to recognize it. And in that sense, I guess I would say uh, I, I like him in that role. It just it's weird that he's there because largely the first five minutes of the film when he's introing it, it's like weird flashbacks. We These movies yeah. were coming out back to back, like one year after the other. Why do we need to spend five minutes recapping the, the past few films? It just seemed silly to me. Yeah, we, we didn't. That that was nonsense. And I mean, it, it feels like because we just watched it last week that they came out six months apart. But um, the, the thing that I found so jarring is that we get that five minutes of recap and and we're in this space of being 12 years in the future after a massive cataclysm, right? After an apocalypse where the humans end up setting off the bomb. So here we go. There's another narrative here about the bomb, the bomb-loving humans, and we're going to have to go back to that trope, which, you know, to me, wasn't as successful in the second movie, but that's certainly where they they really hung their their hat. And uh, here, it's sort of shoehorned in to give us this separation of, of humans and apes. But in the context of it, then we also have this this uh, sort of new civilization political discussion about Caesar and Aldo and, uh, you know, living with the humans. And it, it it just feels like they they had an idea, they had a direction uh, and an intent for the film, and they squandered it. They squandered their lead on the last lap uh, after the last two movies. And I know we are we stand largely alone, uh, <laughs> I feel like, as people who enjoyed those last two movies. The, uh, you know, the reviews that are coming in from uh, our uh, friends on Discord, I think, are lower than, than ours in general. Yeah, although, uh, yeah. Yeah. But I stand oh, by those. Absolutely. I stand by those. I, I think this one, this that was like, I feel like those movies, actually, we know that they retconned the apes universe in order to get us back on track. But once they got on track with uh, Escape from Planet of the Apes, they gave us a set of two films of the three that actually put us on a trajectory for something interesting. And this third one, they came off the rails. 
This is the one where I was really glad to see in Rise of the Planet of the Apes and War for the Planet of the Apes, where they kind of went back and did this story in a much stronger way. Um, I, you know, I, I never felt like the Planet of the Apes franchise needed to be remade. Um, I, again, Tim Burton's remake is my least favorite of all the. Yeah, that nine demonstrated films. that point. Yeah, yeah. But the the reimagining and kind of the 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 looking at it with a, a kind of a different prism, as we saw in the most recent trilogy, I did really enjoy those, and I enjoyed the elements that they pulled out of conquest and battle, and uh, and largely, I feel like they had such a better better handle on the way to tell that story and craft it. And that's why I think that those films stand up, even if I, I ended up having um, uh, more of a problem with War for the Planet of the Apes than the previous two. I still felt like they were doing uh, great stuff with the story and uh, definitely better than what was presented here, because it's not really a battle for the Planet of the Apes. It, you know, it, I understand there were budget cuts and stuff, but. Again, it just goes back to the script. And yes, there are rushing sequels trying to get these things out, but then bring on good writers. And, you know, we talked about, uh, I'm just going to jump into the Carringtons now. Yeah, we talked it. about the Carringtons, uh, John William Cor- or Corrington, John William Corrington and Joyce Hooper Corrington uh, back when we talked about the Omega Man. And the fact that they were kind of, uh, you know, educators who had kind of come into the world of, of writing and, and screenwriting. And um, they, they largely had been doing things that were more uh, TV related and uh, were more serious. I mean, they ended up spending a lot of, I think, the, the 80s working in, in soap operas. And they... Uh, it, it just never felt I, – I know that Joyce was a – I think she was a chemist, and so somehow that seemed to work as far as the, hiring them to write The Omega Man because it was a disease that uh, wiped out most of the people. But that that script had a lot of problems, and they were brought on to write this film uh, after Paul Dane, who had started working on it, um, had, to, had to pull out because of health issues. Um, he, uh, they, they, they were brought on to write this because Omega Man was a hit. And, uh, even though they're just not sci-fi writers. And I really feel that the lack of understanding of this world of these apes films, uh, and they said that they hadn't even seen any of the apes films before they were hired to write this stinking script. Yeah. They just had no idea what they were doing. And I think they were probably given a title and they said, here, go go write this movie and i know paul actually he came on to to do some uh he couldn't do the the rewrites but he polished the script after they had written it and and then he complained to the wga and tried to get his name on it as a co-writer because he, he says he rewrote 90 percent of the dialogue changed the ending um, um but the wga didn't give him that credit they only gave him the story by credit and i mean I'd say maybe that's for the best because the the structure that they had with this script was uh, pretty poor, and I fault the the Corringtons largely for the problems I have with the film. All right, so let's start in with those problems. Can we? Can we? I'd I'd like to start with Aldo uh, because we've been talking a little bit about Aldo, right? And now we have Aldo. We have our Aldo. We, we have our Aldo. Uh, this is uh, General Aldo, uh, and he is played by Claude Akins. What What did you think of our ultimate portrayal of the oft-mentioned Aldo? Well, obviously, it's not the Aldo from uh, the previous storytelling that Cornelius did, where Aldo was the first one who said no. In exactly. this case, Aldo is a, a gorilla who just never seems bright. He seems like he's playing it to be stupid. And I don't know if that was the directing the the direction he was given by Thompson, like play it like you're a dumb gorilla, or if they're trying to say something about kind of the mentality of of the militaristic minded people, or really what I I couldn't figure out why Aldo always just seemed so so dumb. But I mean, every time he would talk, he just sounded like he was the dumb one, and and it was frustrating and. And, and they basically turn it into something where Aldo is trying to take power from Caesar and become uh, the leader because 
he doesn't like the humans. He wants to lock them all up and he wants to basically kill them all. And he really wants the planet of the apes. He doesn't want this idyllic world that Caesar um, is creating. Now, I just want to be clear that this is I, I mean, there we haven't been introduced to another Aldo. This is this is the same Aldo, but retconned by time traveling. There was an Aldo in the last film played by a, a different chimp. actor, David right. Chow. Um, yeah. But we never uh, it was never clear who that was. Yeah. So theoretically, it's a totally different character. OK, I, that that is a retcon hole. Would yes. you agree? <laughs> this, is, this is a, a failing of. I don't know if it's a retcon hole, uh, only because they they put the uh, the oh, the time traveling thing messes it all up. Anyway. It messes it all up, right? Yeah. But it's but it's confusing because we have him playing. We have Aldo as two different species across two different movies with the same name. That is bound to confuse things. Yeah, but again, in the last film, they they name a character Aldo, but they never um, you never are identified with which one Aldo is. That's true. Uh yeah. Well, anyhow, so Aldo, uh, this is one of those strange movies. I want to go back to a comment that we made when we were talking about Beneath the Planet of the Apes when we had the uh, masks of the apes that weren't as good uh, in the, the thing. I think this was one of those where I could not stand looking at Aldo. I felt like I could, <laughs> like his mask was melting off of his face yeah. uh, the entire time. It was it was very hard to to kind of buy into the character. Certainly I didn't have that problem again this time with, um, you know, with Caesar, uh, who I thought looked uh, again, terrific. Uh, but goodness as our primary antagonist here, uh, or gorilla antagonist, uh, it was a real shame not to have a character that I felt like I could buy into. Yeah. He really is not, um, uh, on par with like, uh, um, the general Ursus, right. Mm -hmm. From, from beneath. I, I felt that gorilla had more weight. And, and I don't know if it's just James Gregory working the mask under it as opposed to Claude Aikens. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this one, it, it never looked as good. I, I needed to see Aldo in order to see what was what you were talking about with Ursus. <laughs> Ursus is much better now. Yeah. Uh, he also can't quite can't quite climb trees. Uh, which is, you know, the ultimate end for poor Aldo. Uh, he climbs a tree, and as a gorilla, you just, I don't know, I kind of expect them to be savvier on trees. And there was I've seen Tarzan, man. I know he, what they can do. You know what they can do. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. We know what they can do, and this movie did not uh, even attempt to give us any of that. Well, not only that, but, uh, but Cornelius, uh, the son, has a lot of issues with the trees as well and, and it's funny because he's actually a, a spry little gymnast when he's sneaking over to the gorilla camp to spy on them right. but as soon as they discover him it's like he cannot figure out what to do and right. Zoinks. You know, it's, it's it's sad he's just like oh no they're cutting my branch it's like why don't you jump to another branch and swing off of it like you did before yeah, you know, it's uh, yeah. I mean, and I understand he might be scared and not thinking straight, but I, you know, I just had a hard time buying that. A couple of the characters. Mm -hmm. There's another one that we need to at least get out of the way, uh, and that is Culp. Culp is back, Governor Culp. Yes, he has inherited uh, the rest of humanity on the death of uh, Governor Breck, uh, so he's back now. We we knew Culp from the last movie. He, uh, you know, he's the one who initially captured Caesar. Uh, and he was not a he was not a great guy. Now he's living underground, uh, and they he leads the remaining humans. And now uh, these are those who the humans who have survived the nuclear blast, and they're planning their resurgence. What do you think of him as a leader in this movie? Um, I think he's terrible. <laughs> I had a hard time. Uh, you know, the the there's a one sidedness to the governor in the previous film. But I ended up liking him because I felt that he um, he carried himself in a way that was it was it, it was more fitting for kind of an over the top type of film. You know, he, he mm -hmm. really just chewed the scenery and had a lot of fun with it. And I really ended up enjoying him quite a bit. Culp, I, I don't know if I'm blaming him or again the writers, but he was just flat the whole time. And he's just so I have a harder time buying his one sidedness and his his idiocy with his decisions because I just find him so much less interesting and it's frustrating. I think I'd be have an easier time buying into it if I felt that there was some stronger writing involving his character. Uh, 
His character and the character of all the humans, a general sort of character of the remaining humans, was so empty for me, right? I, I just felt like I, I couldn't tell what they were going for. Are they uh, the sort of remaining zombie hordes? Are they the uprising uh, militaristic uh, last remnants of humanity? I mean, we, sh- we have a little bit of all of that. Uh, but not enough of any one sort of identity of what's left of the humans to make them interesting at all, to make their intentions interesting beyond just, you know, him being that one-trick pony maniacal uh, underground melty face leader. Well, and that's another part of it that's frustrating with the way that the script was, was written, because Mendez says, you know, if you shoot them, you know, you're going to break 12 years of peace. And we know this is, I can't remember, like 20 years later, right? No, it was and like 12, I, I right? th- Wasn't it like 12 years later? Was it 12? Yeah. Well, okay. I, for some reason, I was thinking it was 20 years later. Or maybe it's 20. I, let me, I you keep talking. I'm going to check the script. Yeah. Well, anyway, 12 years of peace. So um, I just felt like, okay, so it's not peace, really, because one, the apes don't know these people exist, you know, so that doesn't make it peace just because, you know, you're living in hiding, right? Yeah. And and also, it's that's also saying that the apes knew of their existence 12 years ago, and because the apes really seem surprised that people are here. It just, it's, a, it's a strange thing to kind of say, and, and the way that the story is structured with that, like these people have been just, you know, they're trying to survive, but they're not doing anything. They're not exploring they're just living underground and and suffering and melting away in in radioactive misery you know at least in uh you know other sorts of post-apocalyptic films you have either people are living in a community that's succeeding and they're trying to prevent other people from getting into it or they're living in in kind of a, a society that's falling apart, and they are sending people out in different directions, trying right. to find alternatives. These guys are living in just a, in misery, but they're not doing anything about it. It's it's terrible. And apparently, it's like you know a, a couple hour trek through the desert to get to this ape wonderland that they that they find. So obviously, it's twelve years. They've been doing a terrible job of trying to save themselves. IMDb says 10 years. Uh, let's see. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't, I, I just, that's a, that's a, a singular point here. I've never bought, uh, I was never able to buy into uh, that, uh, that angle of those characters. And, and so as soon as they go underground, when Virgil and Caesar and McDonald go underground uh, to see what's going on in New York again, uh, and they're wandering through the, the, you know, tunnels and sewers and whatever. Um, and, and, you know, here we have Colt saying, you know, don't bring him to me. Just shoot him on sight here. You know, just get it done. Don't bring him back. Uh, it, it seemed like such an empty, I don't want to say non-threatening. Obviously, they were threatened, but I, I certainly didn't care. Uh, and I didn't see what the humans were going to get out of it in terms of their transformation into whatever they were going to become at the end of the movie. There was just no interest, to, no interest there. Yeah, right. Well, and there was that very weird sequence as the as right after they make that call, right after Colt makes that call over the loudspeaker that apparently uh, not everybody can hear. Um, we we have the three of our heroes sneaking down the the curb, and there's this really sort of opportunistically haunting sequence where you have all these faces of the humans kind of waking up. I couldn't tell where they were. It felt like they were in some sort of a, a ward, like a hospital ward or something. This was all they could, they just were piling up the poisoned humanity on these giant shelves. But then they all wake up at the same time, and suddenly they're not poisoned at all. What I, I just, those kinds of, of twists uh, did, did not play well for building intensity. They just built confusion. Yeah, absolutely. And I know some of those people, like, as they're making the trek across the desert, some of them keel over and die um at least in the unrated or the extended cut you you see some people kind of passing out or dying and left behind so you get a sense that that they're sick but it's not it's not done in a very clear way and also the whole idea okay so so if the if conquest was 91 just say it is 12 years uh or 12 to 20 that would put it at what uh 2003 to 2011 somewhere in that window of time this is taking place and sometime before that, there had been uh, some nuclear war that had destroyed the city and mm-hmm. 
kind of devastated, left kind of this radioactive waste. Um, uh, but, uh, but clearly not everywhere because the apes obviously haven't been affected. And, and so it's a, it's a story telling device that they kind of created in here to have this radioactive city just i think largely so they could create the underground population that would become the underground dwellers later in beneath and we have mendez here for his um you know he's going to be creating the uh temple of mendez or whatever it's called by the time yeah. we get to beneath um but it's it's i don't know it, it just seemed so shoehorned in to have not only do we have apes taking over the planet but we also had had to throw in a nuclear war to kill off most of the humans or something like that. There's just no weight to it compared to the other movies. I know, I know. The other movies may not have had all that much weight either, but comparatively. <laughs> comparatively. Yeah. More weight than this one. Do you, yes. you want to talk a little bit about MacDonald, the brother? You know, I, I really wanted to see MacDonald come back from the previous film. And it's a little disappointing that it ends up being... You know, his brother is here. It's McDonald's brother. Uh, come to, come <laughs> That's to help exactly us. what it felt like. Right? It just, it, you know, it's frustrating. And um, but it's one of those things. It's it's the world of sequels when they they weren't Marvel and they couldn't get every single person back to be in every film that uh, they wanted them in. Uh, in in this case, I, I was actually relieved to hear that, in fact, Harry Rhodes wanted to come back but was unavailable. Like, that somehow makes it better. It does, actually. It does. Yeah. All right. What was so he doing? Uh, you know, I, that I don't know. I'm going to look right now. I don't know, but it, you should look right now. But that's that's why they ended up with Austin Stoker. And I think Austin Stoker did fine, uh, but we just don't get that through line, that sense of continuity. Uh, and, and I think Harry Rhodes was one of the most interesting characters in the last film. And so it, it is less rewarding to have, you know, to try to build up any of that narrative weight on his, on the back of the brother when, you know, the guy we really want to hear from isn't available. Yeah. Uh, so... He had a Harry Rhodes had a very busy 1973. He was in a TV movie, Trouble Comes to Town, actually two TV movies, another one called A Dream for Christmas. He was in an episode of the FBI TV series, and he uh, did another movie called Detroit 9000. Oh, well, maybe that was it. So you can see why he didn't yeah. end up popping up in this one. Maybe we should add that to a series. I'll bet we'd like it better. Detroit 9000. I just love the title. It's the murder, murder capital of the world and the biggest black ripoff of the decade. <laughs> it's going to get solved or the town's going to explode. Explode. Uh, Richard Klein is DP on this one. We have talked about Richard Klein in the past, certainly for Andromeda Strain. Uh, this film comes, he'd been uh, acting as DP for probably 15 years or so. A lot of television, uh, a handful of features before his career really took off. But um, he, he is certainly behind a lot of sort of comic action films, you know, and, and one of your favorites, The Man with One Red Shoe, I know is, uh, is, is a tough one. Deal of the Century, I know, is high on your list. Mm. Uh, but Howard the Duck. I know we you talked about him in Star one. Trek the Motion Picture too. We did. That's right. That's right. Yeah. See, there you go. Star Trek the Motion Picture. So, what is it about this one that makes the the filmmaking uh, a challenge? This one, they went back to film out at the Fox Movie Ranch, and uh, and I think because they just needed a more desolate sort of look. I I feel like it never felt like they were able to achieve anything in the light because of the budget that the last one was able to achieve in the dark mm -hmm. um, because because they were forced to because of the budget the last film they were able to disguise everything and actually made it look so much better whereas this film you're just like in in a little you know a small little enclave of apes and i don't have a good sense that it's going to be a planet of apes you know i don't have a good sense that there's a planet of people living under new york city it's very easy <laughs> right. to find to find uh the group you know they they walk in it's like oh this is where we are we just got a couple blocks to go it just was awfully convenient and i, I you know i don't know i i think the cinematography i don't know if uh if his work was uh was up to par for something that was just so low budget um and he also had a busy year i mean he shot soylent green this year the herod experiment and the dawn is dead so he had a lot of stuff going on in 1973. So uh, this one just doesn't feel like there's anything special with the camera work. Except I will say, 
the, the there to a certain extent some of the camera work mostly the editing during the battle sequence actually stood out to me as wow they actually did a pretty decent job uh, with that part for the film i think this goes back to setting expectations poorly for the film because the battle scene was fine but as you said it certainly doesn't feel like a battle for any sort of planet no it's, no it's yeah Right. It's a skirmish for the for the village of the apes. <laughs> That's, I think it should be retitled <laughs> "Skirmish for the Village of the Apes." I think that I there that. is there is promise <laughs> in that movie, at least in terms of truth and advertising. Uh, absolutely, uh, and and so I, I totally get it. But I think that so many of the holes in the writing, so many of the opportunities for at least setting up a universe, even if they do it through words and broken radio signals, that there is some other sense of a battle going on elsewhere, uh, would have lended credibility to the skirmish at the end. Yeah, and I mean, you can argue the same thing with something like War for the Planet of the Apes because it is you're just following the one group of Caesar and his and his clan as they take on Woody Harrelson and his group of soldiers. Um but I I did have a better sense in that film that Woody felt like he was the last uh the last defense before the planet was taken over by the apes. So at least I had a little mm-hmm. better sense of it. But yeah, in this particular film, it never feels like Culp is even thinking about that, you know, Um, and maybe that's why I like the previous governor so much better, because he really screamed a lot about this whole, you know, we're the last stand before this becomes a truly a planet of apes. Yes. It just it actually felt like there was a lot more credibility to to everything with him rather than here. Well, because he was an ideologue, right? And and we yeah. know ideologues. And I, I wasn't as crazy about it. But again, by comparison, oh, I would much rather have Breck, uh, you know, spouting ideology than what we get with Kolb, who is who is simply, you know, selfish. It's like there's no texture to that. Yeah, no, not at all. And, and just somebody who doesn't even make decisions that make sense, you know, when he's talking to Mendez and they're trying to figure out a plan. I mean, he's just like... He's just, let's just do it. Let's go. Let's kill him. Kill him. Just kill him. Okay. It's like they weren't going to kill him. And then he's just like, oh, just kill him. And yeah. it's like, what, where where did his logic just come from? Like, you know, and I'm like, are they trying to say he's more affected by the radiation perhaps? And so he's not making decisions that are logical because of that. But if that's the case, they really didn't paint that well. You know, and it, it yeah. just, it was just, it was a problem. So we do, this is another one where we have two separate cuts. Uh, we have the extended version, which was, uh, I don't know, when was that released? It was, I, I think, released uh, originally, I, you know, it's it's one of those those variations of a cut that is released for TV where they added a few scenes here and a few scenes there. But then I was looking and I found a, a site that talked about, oh, there's a Japanese edit and there were these different edits. So... It sounds like it. there was the theatrical cut and they had trimmed a lot of stuff out to get it just under an hour and a half. And the whole idea of, of these additional scenes, they just felt, you know, we don't really need them. Let's cut them out. And so um, they did. But and then they were added in piece by piece for the uh, television cuts here and there. But um, it's interesting because other than largely the stuff about the the missile which i find really interesting that the alpha omega bomb is in here and that we actually have a number of scenes very specifically dealing with that Mm -hmm. um uh, and additional battle stuff a lot of it is just little cuts here and little cuts there like really was just kind of thinning it out and uh but I, i you know watching the extended cut i feel that that it's just there's more to it and i appreciate the bits that are there so I watched the uh, theatrical cut. I think that was what was available in the iTunes set. That's what I ended up with. Obviously, didn't like it all that much. I, I don't think it's changing that much. It's, you know, yeah. so you didn't see any of the uh, the stuff with Mendez and the bomb. No, I, I didn't see any of that. And it's been so long since I've seen it. I do rem- I did feel shortchanged without the bomb because I remember the bomb being in there. That was the, I felt like that was... Uh, a, a piece that was important to the film. So when it wasn't there, I thought something something screwed up. Maybe my download screwed up, and it you know <laughs> left out a file um, because I thought that was that was missing. And so um, it, that that part was frustrating. But no, I didn't get any of the other stuff. I did not get that 355 more seconds of the battle were cut, which is my favorite <laughs> note 
on the extended <laughs> edition. Right. It's hilarious. I wouldn't say it's missing anything uh, critical other than the bits with the uh, Alpha Omega bomb. There are a lot of interesting bits throughout, but I don't think it's necessary to be there. It's It's funny because this film is really a sequel to the theatrical cut of conquest and if you watch the unrated cut of conquest which which ends with caesar being just very vehement about you know we're going to take over you humans and uh and it's really a dark ending and then you come into this film where apes and humans are living side by side and uh lisa uh, caesar's wife says you know you you were talking about living in harmony with the humans and all of this sort of stuff. It's very, it's very jarring because the the two films actually don't line up. And that's, that is a downside to that unrated cut of conquest leading into this. They just don't fit yeah. quite as well, but um, what are you going to do? That's, that's what happens when you have these variants of the edits. Yeah. And it, you know, even more interesting, if you, if you had gone with the, uh, theatrical cut then there is an argument argument to be made that breck should have come back yeah right because he wasn't killed he wasn't killed yeah so let's get back into caesar's plan then and the end of the film because the end we have you know uh we have the big everybody play dead scene we corralling the humans we have uh you know and it leads us back to john houston uh let's what do you what do you think of how the film ended Going back to the uh, the Corringtons and their terrible writing, it's it's a really frustrating end of the film. Uh, this was their plan. They they're getting attacked, and then then they decide let's all play dead. The humans will come in. Uh, you know, Culp and his army will will ride on in. They'll find Caesar, who's not quite dead. They'll have a good old conversation with him, and then Caesar will give the cry, and all the apes will jump up and kill all the humans. This is this is a terrible plan. It's like, you know, what happens <laughs> like if, a if charm. they walk in and, and hey, here's Caesar. Let's put a bullet through his head and they just shoot him. I yeah. mean, it's it's just dumb. And uh, it's it's kind of frustrating that that's kind of what they came up with to end this whole thing, because it really needed something stronger than that. Do you, do you think this is a result of any of Dane's polishing? You know, the, from what I read, the original script that the Corringtons wrote, um, it, it actually, I think that this was all part of the script that they had written still. The way that I read it is their ending that was changed comes when we go back to the lawgiver because their script ends on a playground with ape and human children fighting. That was kind of the, the way that it ended. And, and when we go to the lawgiver, we see there are apes and human children all listening to the lawgiver and they're kind of, they're, uh, you know, f- you know, play fighting a little bit. Um, and then we go over to the statue of Caesar and there's a tear falling from his eye. And I think that is, uh, pretty absurd and what's funny about that is actually joyce corrington uh she said it was stupid she said it turns turned our stomachs when we saw it and uh which i think is pretty funny but i will say i kind of agree with her it's really dumb why is this the ending of the of the franchise as they knew it at the time well yes they missed that's that is a great point the ending to the franchise totally but if you look at what he's saying and i don't mean to say but there that that seems like i'm apologizing for it if you look at at what the lawgiver is saying there right we're talking about the this it's sort of a prayer to the future right someday we won't need these weapons but and on the tier we have this sort of i don't remember what the exact line is but we have this sort of um prayer that says you know we we still need our weapons now and it's been 600 years and that's when we we get the sense that he's crying uh, that the statue is crying so i i feel like i get what the intention was with the that production design choice to put that tear there i also think it was silly and way too heavy-handed for that moment at the end of this particular series yeah it really is i just get how somebody could make the case I mean, yes, I can see the point uh, to a certain extent. Devil's advocate, you know. Yes. That's the drill. Uh, the cast, we have Roddy McDowell back as Caesar. He looks great. And uh, he, even if uh, he's not all that <laughs> compelling of uh, Caesar, dare I twist the word there? I don't know if you heard that. Mm. Uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't feel like he was anything more than a, you know, 
a, a village governor himself uh, and awfully wishy-washy. And and he just he he doesn't seem like he's ever really doing much leading. Like yeah. the leading that he does, one there's a lot of off-screen rules that apparently he made, and uh, and then and then his policies are kind of like, uh, you know, yes, no, 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 uh, leaving, no going to the uh, the city, whatever it is, unless Caesar says so. But mm-hmm. Caesar can do it. I'm like, God, this is like Animal Farm here. Exactly. You know? I mean, That's a great comparison, actually. <laughs> yeah, he can do whatever he wants, but uh, you better listen to him otherwise. Yeah. Disappointed with him. Uh, honestly, uh, him and Natalie Trundy as the two returning, uh, you know, they're fine. They're they're pulling their weight as the as the characters who've returned. But I just don't feel like there's the strength in in really any of the characters. Well, they give us the big ending, right? I mean, they give us the big ape shall not kill ape sequence, which I I, I find very strange. Um, I guess it's a I, I guess it's a pivot. I guess it's a, a sort of a cultural statement on, um, you, you know, and we and we get to learn that it's a cultural statement when McDonald says, I guess they just joined the human race, you know, like that that line. It's supposed to have so much weight to it when the apes realize that it turns out apes can do bad things to other apes. Uh, and, and we get the, the tree climbing thing. I thought the pacing and the cutting of that sequence as we get, you know, uh, Caesar trying to express his uh, e- emotions through that mask and uh, Lisa saying, you know, re- joining the chant, everybody else sort of grunting, which seemed to regress them in their development, right? The rest of the apes. And that's one of the things I felt was a little bit of a yo-yo about this movie that I, I couldn't make sense of how far along these apes had had come. It felt like some of them were back into kind of pre-conquest days where they just, you know, they hadn't learned to make hospital corners on their beds yet or to serve water and wash their hands. And they were speaking, uh, you know, in, in much less than 10 years post the last film. So I thought that was a little bit, it sort of cheapened that last moment. It really did. And it's, it, it, it just made it frustrating to, to have it devolve into that. And like you said, the editing was so kind of poorly paced. It was just really kind of a, a slow way to kind of have the climactic finale of the film. Who else do you love to talk about in this movie? You know, we should mention Paul Williams popping up in this, uh, if for no other reason than to mention Paul Williams. Yeah. <laughs> it's Paul always Williams. nice to see him, even if he is an orangutan. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Paul Williams of everybody, maybe Roddy McDowell, but Paul Williams of everybody really looked the part. <laughs> he did. <laughs> oh, man. So funny. Right. Like, yeah. I, I don't know. I just feel like I could watch this and the Brady Bunch Variety Hour and I'm pretty much, pretty much looking at the same guy. <laughs> I just, I can't, I can't help but think of the Muppets when I see all these apes and then yeah. Paul Williams is popping in. That's right. Little, he was little Enos Burdett, <laughs> Smokey and the Bandit. Oh, uh, did you see, did you spot John Landis in here? No, I was very surprised to see him credited as Jake's friend uh, in this movie. Did you catch him? I didn't, but I went to the planetoftheapes.wikia.com uh, and looked him up, and I was like, oh, yeah, sure enough, there he is. There he was. So interesting. I still don't think I could pick him out, uh, although now I know who Jake, I, I can see Jake. I know where Jake will be when I don't ever watch this movie again. Right, yeah, he's he's in the, uh, he's a human living in the village uh, when uh, you can see him when... Uh, he's watching Aldo as he rides into town, and later, uh, while his friend Jake is collecting wood, um, he gives a ride to a young chimp before both of them are taken by Aldo's guerrilla soldiers and locked in the corral. What about Colleen Camp? And she, I didn't even recognize her. Yeah. Which this was her first feature, and she went on uh, after this to do, oh goodness, 140 other things. Uh, I think I think the only thing we've talked about w- with her is Die Hard with a Vengeance. Uh, she was a- another one of the cops, Connie Kowalski, uh, on NYPD. Uh, fantastic! It was really really fun seeing that she was in this, even though I had no idea where she was. Well, and she's obviously hanging out quite a bit with Lisa. Like we see her because she's the one she's talking to, and she's like right. uh, telling telling her that Cornelius is going to die and everything, and. And it's funny. I just I I don't think I 
I even put two and two together that it was Colleen Camp. So sequels and remakes, Andy. Oh, this is the end of our road, sadly, with the apes for now. It is. Well, probably forever. <laughs> oh. Well, we talked about Rise on the film board. We never talked about War, and like I said, I, I revisited uh, Burton's uh, 2001 remake, and don't feel the need to revisit that one again. Well, I'm surprised about that, Andy, because if there's anything I know about you, it's that you are, at your core, a very serious completionist. <laughs> That's there. There's some truth to that. I have a real <laughs> hard time, real, real, real hard time. Imagining that you're going to be able to let this go. This is like... Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're turning me into Roger Rabbit. <laughs> I'm just thinking uh, uh, <laughs> at some point <laughs> we're going to find a way to do those last movies. They must be represented. It's entirely possible that it will happen. <laughs> and and here's the thing. I mean, this, this franchise was so popular that, uh, you know, this spun off TV series, uh, The Planet of the Apes, uh, that uh, I, I think it started running very shortly right after this. And I think, you know, it's kind of sad because um, uh, Arthur Jacobs, who had been um, uh, helming these as the producer over at, uh, at Fox, he died. This is a battle for the Planet of the Apes. It was his second to last uh, film. And I think that he had been trying to get the TV show off the ground for a while, but, uh, and then just as it was happening, ended up dying shortly after, like, I think very shortly after this film was uh, released in theaters. And um, it was released uh, the fall of 74. It had a short run. And, uh, but not, uh, it was still popular, which led to the animated series. And that was a uh, return to the planet of the apes, which, uh, was, uh, I remember that thinking back, that may actually have been my entry point for this, uh, for this world. I feel the, like I might've seen some of those, the animated show. Really? Yeah. It's entirely possible in the, in the mid seventies. Um, it was not very long. I think they only did um, one season, maybe. Um, wow. Yeah, very I small. Don't, I don't think I've ever seen a single episode. Yeah, and then, of course, it went into, um, well, and it spawned a ton of merchandising. I mean, this was, there was a lot of merchandise that you could buy uh, for the apes. It was very popular. And, uh, of course, then it, it, you know, they wanted to relaunch the franchise. This was one of Fox's um, most popular franchises that they had. They really wanted to relaunch it, and they never could. It was in development hell forever uh, through the 80s and the 90s until, um, like we said, Tim Burton finally did the 2001 remake which is uh, a travesty but uh, it's funny when you look at the people who were tied on like Oliver Stone who brought in Terry Hayes to write it and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was going to be on or on in the film with Philip Noyce directing it at one point I I can I, I love picturing these variations of the film it'd be so interesting to see what some of these other people would have done I don't know if I would have liked any of those though most important, Andy, does this film make it a straight pentathlon of non-award-winning movies on this show? You know what, Pete? I can finally say that another of the films has been nominated for an award. What? what? Can you believe it? <laughs> of all the films, Pete, not Escape, not Conquest, it's Battle. Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Gets that is nominated cosmically for crushing. I tell you, it gets nominated for Golden Scroll Award by the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films for Best Science Fiction Film. It did lose to Soylent Green, and uh, but I have to read the other nominees because this is a fantastic list. And I feel like one of these days we're going to have to do a series of <laughs> these films because it's just <laughs> so much fun. First of all, the sequel to The Blob, it's Beware of the Blob. We also have Woody Allen's Sleeper. We have <laughs> which i can only imagine is about a mutant snake or something we have the day of the dolphin the neptune factor and of course westworld oh andy i want to work that in something awful <laughs> i want to do all of those movies i want to watch but i don't think we're yes totally i don't think we should be allowed to flick chart them i, I, don't, I think that would be that would be off the this off the list 
this is what IMDb says about a college student becomes lab assistant to a scientist who's working on a serum that can transform humans into snakes. (laughs) Dear. What's great about that is that was essentially the plot of Spider-Man (laughs) two. Oh my. How'd it do at the box office? Well, according to varying reports, Thompson either got the same amount or a tiny bit more to make this film, $1.8 million, or $9.75 million in today's dollars. No matter how you slice it, it was the cheapest of the films. Looking at them all in today's dollars, they went from $40.1 million down to $18.6, then $14.9, then $9.8, and finally $9.75. But like the others, it still made money for Fox. The movie was released June 15th, 1973, opposite Pam Greer's Coffee. It went on to make $8.8 million at the box office, or $47.9 million in today's dollars. That leaves the fifth Apes film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $410,556. Based on the budget drops, the best return on Fox's investment of all the films actually ended up being beneath the Planet of the Apes, making six, uh, a little more than six times its budget back. Then the original film at 5.76 times its budget, followed by Conquest, then Escape, and Battle, which really, it just ended up at the bottom of the barrel on all accounts. But it was a profitable series for the studio, and obviously one they were anxious to return to in one form or another. Now, you have been talking about the fact that Fox was in deep financial trouble throughout the entire series, and yet you haven't mentioned it once here. Does that mean that Fox was starting to come out of their difficulties? I think they were. I didn't find any. I, I kept looking. I couldn't find anything specific about when they started. I mean, I, I think they had been pulling themselves out of that bit by bit. But I also think as they were working on this franchise, they were realizing, hey, if we do a sequel and 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 do it for less money, we'll still make a chunk of money back. This was kind of the beginning of that mentality of the sequels and the sure. whole sequelitis. And they're like, hey, let's put less money in. We'll still make money. People are still going to come. And, you know, they proved successful uh, four times after that original one. So I, I can't fault them for for keeping it cheap. Uh, Andy, on that note, keeping it cheap, I think it's time for us to rank it. Oh, let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all of the movies we've talked about on this very show. And then if you so choose, you can swipe over in your show notes, tap the word flick chart, and that'll take you straight to this movie where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, uh, no surprise, again, Battle for the Planet of the Apes or Numi, the girl with the dragon tattoo. Girl with the dragon tattoo, please, Andy. Same for me. Battle for the Planet of the Apes or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Munchausen for me. Yeah, Munchausen for me, too. Battle for the Planet of the Apes or Giant. <laughs> I know you love Giant, Pete. I, I am going to choose Giant. I am, too. Battle for the Planet of the Apes or 2010. Uh, 2010. I am going to pick Battle here. Are you f- <laughs> kidding me? <laughs> No, I don't. I, I, it's a, again, it's a franchise I love and it's something that I still will watch, even though I will gripe about it. Um, 2010 uh, was just a huge, huge disappointment for me in every way, shape, and form. So the, um, the 2001, 2010 series clearly poisoned this show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will go to the mat on this one. All right, let's do it. One, two, two. Three. Scissors. Rock. Scissors. Rock. <sighs> Battle for the Planet of the Apes or the Dead Zone. The I will dead go zone. with the Dead Zone. Battle for the Planet of the Apes or the Danish Girl. The Danish Girl. Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Oh, Andy, to be so wrong <laughs> right in a row. Here we go. Uh, it's what I would watch more. I would agree that the Danish girl may have better performances, has some more strengths, but I would still watch Battle first, even though I'm going to bitch about it. Okay. Here we go. All right. One, One two, two, three. three. Rock. You've been practicing. Battle for the Planet of the... I told you I've been going to <laughs> RPS school. Battle for the Planet of the Apes or the Crazies. Both 1973. You know, I would, uh, I'd do the crazies. I would do the crazies because I don't remember it that well. 
<laughs> that may be I may, why I'm enthusiastic for it. I may I may retract that. It's it's down but, there now. We're in the bottom of yeah. the bottom of the well right. here. Battle for the Planet of the Apes or the Blob. Oh, the Blob. I do remember the Blob. <laughs> yeah, I'll say the Blob. Battle for the Planet of the Apes or Fritz Lang's Manhunt. I'm going to go with Manhunt. Manhunt, yeah. Well, that lands Battle for the Planet of the Apes at 339 on our chart. 339 out of 368. I would say that's uh, definitely the lowest of the Apes films that uh, that we've ranked here. So, yeah. Way down Deservedly there. so. Looking at our flick chart, it looks like it goes Planet of the Apes, Conquest, Escape Beneath Battle. How do you feel about that? I, fine. Um I, you know, for me, my, my favorite one, I think, after all is said and done, was Escape. And because of the the series nature of it, uh, going Escape to Conquest was, I found, really rewarding. I, I like that. I, in hindsight, struggle even more uh, with the Heston factor, but I can't deny the classic nature of the original movie. So it, it's all, it, it's all close enough. It's all close enough. I, I really feel like beneath is in the right place and battle is absolutely in the right place. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed talking about this series, Andy. I think it was a great idea. And, um, and I'm so glad it fell within our 1968 kickoff. Um, uh, clearly these movies have come a long way. Uh, but, but it was, uh, it was really great to watch them back to back. I think that was for me, at least it was rewarding. It is. It's a fun franchise and yes, it can take some, um, adapting to because the, the style, the storytelling, it, it is, it's weak to a certain extent, but I think there are a lot of strengths and certainly as somebody who grew up with them, it's something that is uh, close to my heart, even when it is something like this, this last film that we've, uh, looked at, but, um, I'm excited with what Fox has been doing with them, and I'm curious to see if they're going to keep going. So where does this put you on your uh, star ranking at letterbox.com slash the next reel? You know, I struggle with this one. I, I think I ranked it higher last time I watched it. Um, I, I think I gave it a three star. I think I probably would go two now, but it's two star and a like. Really? Yeah. There's there's something about the franchise that I still really enjoy. So even with my problems that I have, I still find it very watchable. I I think that I I can agree with the two star. I'm not going to give it a like, uh, and that's because I, I feel comfortable giving the whole series a like. I would give Planet of the Apes a nice, strong, sturdy heart. Uh, but I, I'm not. I just don't need to watch this one again. You know, I don't know. You you swayed me. I I think that that's what I'm really thinking here. Is I I just love the franchise so much that I think I want to give it a like. But yeah. when I really think about this film by itself, I think it's fair to say that I don't have to give it the like on this one. All right, I there. call that a victory. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So where do we go from here? This is exciting. We're going to be uh, our next series is actually not a franchise. We're just looking at, at crime films from 1968. So we've got four films that we'll be covering. We're going to look at Peter Bogdanovich's Targets. We're going to be looking at Coogan's Bluff. We're going to be uh, which is uh, directed by uh, Don Siegel, I believe. And uh, then we're going to be looking at uh, The Detective with Frank Sinatra. And we're going to be ending on the crazy Italian Danger Diabolic. I, I'm very excited for that one, um, Danger, uh, in particular, although all of these seem great to me. I can't wait. I haven't seen any of them. So it's very this exciting. Is be, it's very this is, exciting. It will be a fun uh, series to jump into. Yeah. I think rarely do we have a, a series of films that, uh, that we haven't seen at all. So. Yeah. Perfect, perfect. Well, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on patreon.com slash the next reel and get access to our exclusive members only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. We talk about movie news and new trailers. Plus, we go head to head in our weekly challenge in which we put together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week. There are all sorts of other goodies, too, if you support us at different levels. So just head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. You can learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show for free in your favorite podcast app or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Next Reel. And 
If you want to get a head start and aren't quite ready to dive into patreon.com slash the next reel, you can join our Discord, or the TNR community over on Discord uh, for free right now and jump in with uh, to the conversation with a ton of fantastic movie lovers who are just sitting there talking about movies, waiting for you. Uh, look for the link in the show notes. The next reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart running Instagram, Ben Lott running all things on Twitter, and thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song Ragtime Instrumental as the theme to the show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Oh, people liked this movie more than I expected. Yes, they do. The, the yes, average rating do. was a four star on this movie, Andy. Yeah. We were struggling to hit half that. I, I find that ratings mostly favor the positive. Well, in this case, uh, I went with a one star. What'd you end up doing? I did a five. Oh, Okay. Well, would you like to uh, uh, fall or climb today? Uh, what, uh, your choice. Uh, I think I will start. Go for as it. As long as you're offering. Shaitis has this to say with a one star. In this corner, we have some clips from the TV series. And in the other corner of a moderately sized field, we have some more clips. It's basically about two dozen extras in total driving a couple of Jeeps and a school bus. The battle is ludicrous at best. See if you can spot the same extras getting killed over and over again. Oh, the highlight? It's a treehouse getting blown up. And you know it's a highlight because they show it being blown up several times during the battle. Seriously, at least five times the treehouse goes boom. The humans are bad shots and must have been drunk when they put on their own makeup. Hilariously bad. <laughs> treehouse goes boom. As a counterpoint, I think there were more than one treehouse. You do? I think I you think, think they, they had lost a more than one treehouse. All right, I think so. Yeah. Noted for the record. Well, I have a five star by uh, by a surprised and not as much reviewer. That's their name, <laughs> uh, who reviewed this on VHS tape on uh, April twenty fourth, two thousand six. Glad to see VHS is still alive and well. Real, I was thinking it was making a comeback, but 2006, I, <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> so, for this installment, we do go both forwards and backwards, and then forwards and backwards, and again and again through time. Yes, I was taken away more immediately by the second time that I saw battle than I was the first, and this even made Planet of the Apes The Forbidden Zone at Malibu Graphics their best publication courtesy of me for the little or not known peacetime of the humans and apes, of which this film had both begun and ended with, and then as a result the people at Malibu Graphics were just as annoyed by me as they were glad to have me there for them. They invited comment and critique, and got from me more than what they bargained for as a result and along with this for not doing their own homework, but still check out the Zipota website for damn the continuity all to hell, as it agrees with someone's response of what continuity. Also, please check out the IMDb sites for this movie as others too. <laughs> what the hell was that? <laughs> what was that? I think there's... there's... <laughs> Not, what was that? What did you just do to me? Uh, oh, God. I don't know if there's anything else that needs to be said after that. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. <laughs> yeah (laughs) you gotta check that out for damn the continuity all that (laughs) (laughs) i've been podcasting since 2006 in that time i've tried countless hosting platforms but in august 2022 we switched to transistor to power all of our shows here at true story fm 
and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>